This week on The Thomas Guide, we've got a big show ahead. Obviously, Barack Obama only has a few hours left in office. So we're going to talk about what that transition process is. He moves in and out of the White House in under five hours. We're going to go deep inauguration. We've got FBI agent Steve Moore coming in to break down the security details. we got pop culture expert Chuck Klosterman to tell us there are Trump copycats all over the country. You're going to want to stay tuned for that and much more coming up on The Thomas Guide. This is The Thomas Guide. Your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas. Political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide. With your host, John Thomas. Welcome back to The Thomas Guide. Can you believe that Donald Trump is about to be the president of the United States in just a few hours? Uh, it's amazing. Uh, whether you love him or you hate him, history is about to be made. Um, and what I want to do, I think everybody's talking about inauguration. You can't flip on the television or the radio without uh, hearing about the inauguration. I want to first start, just take a look at the rigorous schedule of events, of, of what's going to happen over the next 24 hours. It's really quite fascinating. So looking at today at 4 p.m., in fact, going on right now, because this is all Eastern time, right now, Donald Trump is doing a Make America Great Again rally uh, celebration at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, it's the official kickoff to all the inaugural events. Trump will give his first major speech there, but it's not just Trump. Um, he's got country music star Toby Keith, actor John Voight, and... Rock band Three Doors Down among the participants, of course, with military bands and whatnot. You know, it is kind of funny. I don't think it's a big deal that Trump couldn't get. I mean, Toby Keith's a big deal. But by and large, celebrities were sitting this thing out. It is kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> three Doors Down. I mean, this is the best thing to happen in their career in like 10 years. So I guess uh, as I like to tell People I work with are my clients. When they'll complain about something, I will say the opportunities and the problem. And uh, and in this case, the opportunity was for three doors down. You're not going to want to miss that. I'm sure that'll be fun. Uh, I think everybody's waiting on on Toby Keith. Uh, what uh, when he says uh, in his favorite, famous, most famous song right now, uh, when he says we're going to stick a boot in your ass if you mess with America. Everybody's wondering if he's going to censor himself or actually say ass. The good news when we're on a podcast is we can say whatever we want. Um, so that'll be interesting today. Tomorrow, uh, the inaugural swearing-in ceremony, everything begins at 6 a.m. Eastern, but the actual oath of office will begin at about 9.30 a.m. Um, uh, Eastern uh, and opening remarks uh, at 11.30 Uh in terms of singing talent, they have 16-year-old soprano Jackie, I think it's Ivanko or Ivancho, uh, who is a contestant on America's Got Talent. Um, Jackie will sing the national anthem. There are six prominent members of the clergy that will then give readings. Uh, and then over 250,000 color-coded tickets were given out to the ceremony. So you can attend... Uh, if you want to be way off in the distance, you don't need a ticket. But if you want seating and good seats, you need a ticket. 
250,000 tickets. I kind of feel left out that I'm not there. Um, then, of course, after that, the inaugural parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. 40 organizations, including several military and veterans groups, will march in the parade. Here's what I thought was kind of interesting. Um, there are seven high school marching bands set to perform. It has been a long-standing tradition that Washington, D.C. high school marching bands play in the parade. But this year, not one school even applied to participate in the event. Now, it's largely a political statement, um, and I, you know, I think that's what's going on there. But it's amazing how this, I really fault the, uh, I fault the, not the students, I fault the principals, I fault the teachers, because they are robbing their students of really a once in a lifetime opportunity to participate in this. And uh, shame on those principals, shame on those teachers for not taking advantage of the opportunity to participate in history. It just, that's really disappointing and it's a missed opportunity. That's a shame. Then, of course, later there are the official inaugural balls. Uh, there Normally there are, I think, five to seven. This year Trump is only participating in three, which I think is an interesting choice. Why is it only three? Why not more? You'd think Trump would want as many, as many opportunities to have people kiss the ring as he could. I think he's doing three for a reason. At some point, people get tired of it in terms of the balls aren't for the people in the balls. The balls are for us regular folks who are watching on TV. Um, and at a certain point, it outlives its usefulness. Uh, Trump is probably savvy enough from a ratings perspective that you don't want to show too much of him in one particular circumstance. I think that's what's going on here. I actually think that's a, that's a smart thing. And then, of course, uh, on Saturday, there'll be a national prayer service. Uh, and that's it. He's president. Uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, about, you remember Melania Trump got in some trouble in the convention, the Republican National Convention, because she plagiarized or her speechwriter plagiarized portions of her speech, uh, actually from Michelle Obama. Well, Trump's not taking anything for granted. In fact, he said that he personally wrote his inaugural speech himself, uh, which I do a lot of speech writing for my clients and candidates of all different levels. I don't quite believe Trump when this is, um, he's in a gray area right now because the way he's saying it is, last month he planned to write the speech himself. Um, and Trump admits that during the campaign he did not write his own speeches. But now he's saying he shared a picture on Twitter of him writing, <laughs> saying, look at me write the speech, right? I don't know if I fully buy this. I do buy that Trump was involved in the, the opening and the first draft of his speech, but this is such an important speech. I guarantee you he has teams of speechwriters that were sitting in the room, and it was more of a conversation. Trump was describing his intent for the speech. That's how Barack Obama did it. That's how George Bush did it. Then once he describes the intent and they ask a few questions, then the Speechwriters go off and write the first draft, bring it back to the president-elect, and it refines from there. I suspect Trump, from what we hear, he's a bit of a micromanager, 
that uh, involved in the inaugural process. I mean, he was involved in selecting the tablecloth colors, the menus. So I'm not surprised he was very involved in the speech writing. But to say that he wrote it himself, I just, I just don't buy it. Um, there's something fascinating about the, it's called the first family tradition, um, often dubbed as the five craziest hours in the White House. There is a ritual that's happened since JFK where uh, the outgoing president and the incoming president literally move all their items and move out and move in in five hours of time. That's an incredible feat uh, to do. In fact, uh, the head of Gary Walters, who's the head of the choreography of the transition, um, he's called the White House Chief Usher, says, uh, quote, I call it organized chaos. That's one way of describing it. It takes uh, 90 plus permanent White House staffers and several trusted contractors. They show up at 4 a.m. They get everything ready. They're in and out in five hours. That's something to watch in itself. Um, here's the thing. I My favorite part about the inauguration, there's a lot of cool things about it, but my very favorite part, actually there's, there's two favorite parts. First is um, when Donald Trump's being sworn in, there are two things to watch for. One, watch the spouse. Watch the look on the spouse's face because that's the most honest, and the family, that's the most honest expression, I think, of what the president-elect, incoming president, is really feeling of any of them. So that's the first thing to watch. If you want to kind of get a sense of what they're feeling in the moment. And the second, there's going to be two guys, uh, usually to the, let's see, rear left, it would be stage right, uh, to the president-elect, incoming president, and one of them uh, is holding a briefcase and the other isn't. Uh, and the one that's holding the briefcase is holding what they call the football. It's the nuclear football. It is that, that briefcase that holds the keys, the launch codes, and the nuclear button um, to launching our, our nuclear weapons and strategic missile systems around the country. That case is what this peaceful transfer of power is about. They transfer it from Barack Obama's guy who always wears like has has to have it on his persons at all time. And he's always within pretty much visual sight of the president his entire eight years or four years in this case. Um, Barack Obama's guy, military officer, hands in one move the briefcase over to president-elect will be President Trump in one move. And that is the transition of power. To me, that literally sends chills down my spine, and I love watching it because that's what's great about our country is the peaceful transfer of process, uh, peaceful transfer of power. So watch the family members, and watch the football being handed over. Um, so what is the president elects? Uh, what's Trump's first meal as president going to be? I'm sure you've been wondering. It's interesting. It's a three course meal. It's going to start with Maine lobster and Gulf shrimp. Uh, followed by Virginia beef with a dark chocolate and juniper. Am I saying this right, Jenny Lee? Jus. Jus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, dessert is a chocolate souffle. 
uh, with cherry vanilla ice cream, and each dish obviously is paired with a specific wine or champagne. Although, interestingly, Trump does not drink and has never had a drink of alcohol. Uh, he is a teetotaler. Um, a lot of people don't know that he doesn't drink. Uh, part of how he's explained the reason he doesn't is because uh, one of his siblings died, uh, was an alcoholic, and he saw what that did to his, his brother. But also, um, I think he ended up dying, not because of alcohol poisoning necessarily, but because of an accident related to the fact that he was an alcoholic, so he doesn't drink. Uh, interesting stuff. You know who also doesn't drink? Bill O'Reilly. He's never had a drink either. Interesting trivia. Are we on time with our guest? Are we not? We're good so far? Great. We got plenty of time. Great. Uh, so this is an interesting um, point. Uh, there's an article in Yahoo News uh, that came out this week that says um, Donald Trump has one big lesson to learn from President Barack Obama. And that lesson is he learns... He needs to learn how to be how to cry because crying shows empathy. And one thing Donald Trump never does is really uh, show a human moment where he shows vulnerability or empathy or sympathy. Um, Trump is always very stoic in his look and his speech. And so what this article is saying is that, quote, you know, if he could squeeze out one tear during the inauguration, people will turn around quite quickly their feelings toward him. Uh, this is a behavioral expert that was quoted in the article. Um, Barack Obama has wept as president at least 10 times on camera since he took office. Um, the last one that I recall was when he was talking about gun violence uh, in America and the toll that it takes on people and he wept no doubt about it tears do show empathy don't hold your breath that donald trump is going to cry i'll i remember uh there was a podcast uh that chuck todd host of ms uh meet the press uh was talking about he's seen donald trump over the years in many different capacities um and this is really i find it fascinating um he said a couple things about donald trump he said I've never seen Donald Trump laugh. And I mean really laugh. Um, like a belly roar laugh. And Chuck's point was Trump always is guarded to some degree. And if you let out a belly roar of a laugh, that means you're letting your guard down. You're having an honest human moment. And Trump, and Chuck said Trump's never done that. And then I started thinking back. I was like, you know what? I don't think he ever has it's just fascinating how guarded and protected he is of his public image i'm sure the man laughs but it's obviously behind closed doors it's not on camera the other thing chuck todd said was that when for instance trump would visit meet the press uh normally you know you might be concerned about audio quality all those things that's not trump trump will do the segment and then oftentimes he will sit for an hour after the show in the back production room watching his performance with the sound off over and over and over again. Why? 
because Trump understands and feels that the visual component of the imagery he's projecting is more important than what he's saying. It's fascinating, right? That he's so obsessed with consistently projecting power and strength and the consistent image that that's what he obsesses about. Most elected officials actually aren't worried how they look. They're worried about what other people think, of course, but the words they're saying. Not as much Trump. Anyway, uh, I don't think it would hurt Trump if he learned how to cry, but don't hold your breath. I just I just don't see that coming. Uh, so we've got a couple other interesting stories. And, uh you know, liberals are in full outrage and freak out moment and meltdown over the prospect of Donald Trump being president. Part of Trump winning is just entertaining to watch that whole thing happen. Um, but there's there's going to be a bunch of protests uh, as Trump takes office. Uh, Jane Fonda is is uh, participating in a women's march. Um, this weekend in downtown Los Angeles that's supposed to be a 70,000 people strong. Oh, God, this studio's in downtown LA. I hope we can clear out before uh, <laughs> before the women's march. Ay, ay, ay. Um, there's a story uh, that um, there will be thousands will be in D.C. to stand with women but if you can't be there uh, to stand and protest Donald Trump and stand with women, um, they have some tips for you how to stand with them from home. So I'm just going to go through these things. Uh, first, um, join a smaller local march near you. And then they said there's 616 uh, sister marches all over the country that you can participate in. You could click the link. Uh, second, make a poster and stick it in your front yard for the day or, you know, until 2020. <laughs> um, three, um, if you know someone who's driving in D.C., help them get there by paying for part of their gas bill, like you're doing your part to help them participate even though you can't. Uh, number four, invite friends over to watch coverage of the march together. And then set goals, how you're going to help girls and women in 2017. Next one is donate to organizations that will uh, protest Trump. Next one is wear a nasty woman t-shirt and share a picture on social media. I can't wait to look at my news feed over the next few days. Uh, number seven, go on strike for all or part of the day. Well, that's nice. Um, number eight, make your own custom playlist and blast it on repeat all day long. Songs could include, uh, I am woman, you don't own me, respect, uh, rebel girl and an assortment of Beyonce's greatest hits. Well, I like Beyonce's pretty, but I don't know that I'm listening to Beyonce because I'm protesting Donald Trump. Uh, number nine, carve out half, uh, a half an hour a day to follow or subscribe and learn about women who were inspired to throw their hats in the political ring for the first time after the election. Okay, well, that's fine if you're passionate about that. Um, number 10, don't forget to put a calendar alert 
for when the midterm elections are coming up. Enough of this. Get over it. He's president. Maybe give him a couple days and see what he's actually going to do before you start protesting him. That's the thing that grinds me about this whole process. He hasn't even taken office yet. And people are already saying he's the worst president they've ever had. I just don't believe that's the case. Number one, I, I actually think if you look at the economy so far, job creators uh, have been deploying capital uh, since since Donald Trump has uh, taken office. And the, the other is, uh, or, or since he's won the election, uh, and the other is he hasn't officially done anything yet. Wait until he does something you can lock onto and say, see, he's anti-woman. But until he does that, knock it off. It's, it's, it's just fascinating because in 2008 and 2012, as depressed as Republicans were about Barack Obama and his liberal agenda, there wasn't rioting and protesting in the streets. Uh, and there were, I got, it was countless friends, uh, Republican friends of mine that did not vote for Barack Obama, that were trying to look at the glass half full. And I remember them saying, let's not jump to conclusions. I know we think we know what he's going to do, but give the guy a shot. Give him 100 days. And if he blows it, we'll hold him accountable. But give him, you know, he talks about there's no red state, there's no blue states. That wouldn't be a bad thing. Let's see if he can do it. Where the, the Democrats, I mean, it's, it gets to the whole point about um, Democrats abstaining from attending the inauguration. That is so political, obviously, on its face, uh, and hypocritical. In John Lewis's case, he said this is the first time he's ever not gone to an inauguration. Wrong. He didn't attend George W. Bush's inauguration in 2000. But to me, it's even more serious than that. What sitting at the inauguration has told me is that, first of all, attending the inauguration is about respect for the office of president and our government as an institution and our country and the peaceful transition of power. It's not really about the office holder, but about the process in the institution. So by not showing up to the inauguration, even if you disagree with the president, you're disrespecting the institution that our country's founded on. And you've been you've shown that you're willing to put politics before our your respect for our government and our country. Ugh. It's depressing. But the crass political operative in me goes, well, the problem, the opportunity's in the problem. And at the end of the day, if the Democratic Party firmly believes that they need to always put politics before country and they want to behave like that, it's fine. They're going to continue to be out of touch with mainstream America and not address things that Americans really care about, like the economy, for instance. And what does that mean? That means that they will lose in the midterm elections. And if they don't get their act together, they will lose again in four years and Donald Trump will be reelected. So I guess... At the end of the day, all this bitching and moaning and sitting abstinence, it's really to their peril and Republicans' benefit. But it just, 
it's sad to see our country suffer because of it, but uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's a good, it's a good thing. Uh, so there are a bunch of more uh, more protest stories I've got to go through. Do uh, is our guest on the line yet? Has he emailed back? No, Steve yet. Okay, cool. We'll get him when we get him. Uh, so the uh, the National Education Association is urging students and teachers to skip school on Thursday, which is today to protest the presidency of Donald Trump. They're promoting a, quote, National Day of Action. (laughs) Oh, geez. I mean, I'm sure some kids will do that because anytime they can get out of going to school, I mean, I remember being a kid. If if I thought I could get a, do a walkout, I would... I would walk out over the, the quality of the lasagna in the school cafeteria if I thought it could get me out for 45 minutes or delay me from having to take my math test. But gosh, it's just shameful to see adults playing into this uh, because it's just such, such a, a bad example uh, for kids. Um, there's something uh, uh, LGBT, LGBT activists are hosting a dance party outside... Uh, our vice president's uh, rental home. In fact, I think we've got a video of that. Can we roll the clip? Mike Pence is going to take the second highest office in our country, and he has passed quite horrific anti-LGBT laws. He has also taken staunch stances against the LGBT community, and we are not okay with that. Dance is a form of healing. It allows us to tap into our bodies and use our bodies, use movement to promote a movement. <laughs> well, that was it's a cute, uh, cute dance party. I mean, look, I, I'm fine with that if... They want to dance their their way to protest. Uh, good for them. Um, but uh, again, it's interesting how President-elect Trump has not has not executed one official executive order, not passed one law, and yet activists are in full freakout. Although. One thing I know from like the LGBT community in in San Francisco and in Palm Springs is that anytime they can have a dance party, they're going to have a dance party. <laughs> so maybe it's just an excuse to dance their hearts out and get on television. Um, a man was arrested in uh, in Florida who posted a video threatening to kill Donald Trump at the inauguration. Um, he recorded the video on Monday and said that he intended to go to D.C. on Friday and kill Trump. And, quote, he uh, he was, quote, following orders and challenged the Secret Service to stop him. Um, he also referred to himself as the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think he's a little crazy. Um, but honestly, I got to tell you, the I, w- I wish we had Steve Moore on because he could break down security uh, of the inauguration itself. But I, if I were Donald Trump and the family members, I would be scared to death uh, of crazies, of assassination attempts. 
I know they've got that place on lockdown. Um, I know, for instance, um, that they're worried about people driving a car at high speeds and plowing into the the Pennsylvania Avenue uh, parade, which is really, I think, the most vulnerable point of all of the ceremonies because that's when the president and his wife and the family, they get out of um, of the presidential limo, which is essentially a tank. They get out and they're on the street waving. Uh, and at that point, they're very exposed. And so I know, for instance, what they do is they have these empty, they have these trucks lined all over the route uh, that are literally filled with sand. I mean, that weigh thousands and thousands of pounds that uh, if you hit the truck, you're, you're, there's just no way you could move it. And the way they have these trucks lined up filled with sand is this, you literally would have to serpentine through the trucks to drive through it, causing you to slow down your car so much that you'd be driving at like two miles an hour to actually get to the president. And at that point, it would you'd never get to the president. They could secure him in time. Uh, but honestly, I'm still, I'm, ugh. I mean, I, I would be very concerned, and I hope to God nothing happens to the president-elect or his family members tom- uh, tomorrow. It's just very, very scary stuff. Uh, Anti-Trump protester uh, sets himself on fire outside Trump's D.C. hotel, um, and then he put himself out and then surrendered to the police. I mean, people, liberals are literally setting themselves on fire. <laughs> that's like how much of a meltdown mode they're in. Um, there are a couple reasons. Uh, if you if you look at all the Democrat elected officials uh, that are, they're listing their reasons for not going. So I'm going to run through going to the inauguration. So let me just go through a couple of these things. It's fascinating. More than 50 of them, by the way, are protesting. And by all of them are in safe Democratic districts, conveniently. Number one, it's uh, an act of defiance. Number two, it's to oppose bigotry or demagoguery. Um, number three, this is interesting. California Representative Karen Bass said, quote, because a Twitter poll told them not to go. Hmm. Um, uh, another California representative, actually two of them said, gave their reason was an unspecified personal conviction. Okay. Uh, another one said to keep a clear conscience. Uh, so that he could look his family in the eye. Um, because another one, a uh, representative Raul, Raul Ruiz, who's out of uh, Palm Springs, said, "Because quote a real president doesn't insult and bully celebrities or everyday Americans because they disagree with him." End quote. Okay. Uh, other ones say, "Because I don't want to normalize Trump's presidency." But here's the problem with that logic. That's exactly what Ted Lieu, the congressman for West Los Angeles, said on on Good Day LA the other day, actually on Fox 11 uh, at five. That the problem with that logic is it's not about legitimizing or delegitimizing the president, the office holder. It is about the office of president and respect for the institution. And that's where they get it wrong. Um, And it's about politics. It just is very upsetting. the other one, uh, John Lewis, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, Representative Mark Pokin uh, said, because Russia, conflicts of interest, and John Lewis. I, I, you know what? This is the one that I like the most. 
Uh, a representative from Oregon, Kurt Schrader, said, quote, I respectfully decline to freeze my ass out there in the cold for this particular ceremony. Eh, all right, it's cold. I guess I respect that more than I do uh, because they don't want to uh, uh, legitimize uh, Trump and his election. Do we have our guests on the line? Great. We'll bring him in in one second. I've just got a couple more things to go through. Um, so <laughs> Trump, in only a way that Trump could say it. Um, of course, you know, he's his Twitter account has been very active, uh, as it always is. But Trump did say uh, to the people that are um, the members of Congress who are boycotting and refusing to go to the inauguration, Trump said, that's okay. Give me your tickets because we, we need seats so badly to give the people who actually want to come. <laughs> and then he said again, this, is, this actually happened on Fox and Friends. He said, no, seriously, what's happening to their tickets, the members of Congress? I hope they're going to give us their tickets. Ah, uh, Donald Trump. President Trump, soon enough. How, uh, how uh, positive of him. Uh, I'd like to bring in our guest, uh, Chuck Klosterman. We're very pleased to have him join us. Uh, Chuck Klosterman is um, hes a pop culture expert. He is a prolific author, and he has a new book that we're going to get into in a couple minutes. Uh, but I'd like to welcome Chuck to the Thomas Guide. Chuck, you can you hear us? Hey. Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for joining us. Oh, sure. So... Uh, Chuck, there's a, a bunch I want to get to with you, but uh, I want to start off by first asking um, that, you know, oftentimes I think pop culture mirrors politics and vice versa. Do, do you think that uh, we're going to start seeing a lot of Trump copycats running for office? It would be hard for someone to really copy what he did. It's so unusual. I mean, it's so kind of hard to imagine, but I do think this will happen. I I think that the main or one of the principal impacts of his presidency will, will sort of change um, the perception of, of what kind of person can or should become president. I mean, you know, the, the history of people from entertainment going into politics, um, there aren't a lot of failures. I mean, Sonny Bono got into Congress. Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor. It seems as though the recognition you gain from being sort of a cultural figure is a positive and, and not nearly as much baggage as I think people would have assumed, you know, 35 or 40 years ago. So I do think there will be different kinds of people running for president in the future. Now, I suppose some people will think that is good. I guess it's, it's a subjective thing. But I do think, yes, the window will change. The window will open wider. Uh, yeah, I, you're right. I, I I think, I think I agree with you in the sense of uh, um, it's hard to replicate Donald Trump specifically, but I think you're going to see a lot of celebrities or people. Uh, they're going to they're going to take elements of Trump that they share and they're going to run for office. For instance, you're going to see, I think, celebrities take a harder look because they're going to say, I've got I'm I've got universal name recognition. So, well, I can run. I don't need to raise much money. Right. You're going to see that. Um, I think you're going to see some candidates think that they can use Twitter and drive a news cycle 
and then they're going to probably find out that doesn't work as well for them as it did with Donald Trump. So I think they're going to take a lot of elements, um, the especially like the politically incorrect um, way Donald Trump speaks. I think in the midterms we're going to see copycats in Congress all over. But um, yeah, that will be interesting if that happens. Another thing that yeah. might uh, occur is you know. There's been a, kind of a history in the Republican Party of there's two ways you can sort of uh, get to a major office, one of which is like coming out of the military, like Eisenhower or whatever. Maybe businessman will replace sort of general in this context, that 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 it will be perceived that one, even if you don't have a career in politics or a real history with it, being an elected official, uh, high-profile experience in business will sort of almost be like a, like a, a decorated military career. Mm. Yeah, uh, that would be interesting. You know, there are a lot of business people that run for office, um, like at gubernatorial levels, uh, congressional level, um, you know, because they've been successful in business. They say, you know, government should be run more like a business. But you're right. Uh, um, holding, I, I guess... A lot of it rests in Donald Trump's hands, right? If he does a good job, particularly in the area of the economy, then I could see people making that argument, saying, see what it takes. It takes a businessman. If he doesn't do a good job, then that may not parlay well for others, right? It'd be harder to make that argument. It will be difficult, though, to get an objective read on how successful or unsuccessful he is. People have made up their minds so inflexibly about him, sort of on both poles, that his entire administration, regardless of, of of what he does, will seem as though it's a real polarized, uh, arguably great or failed period. You know, it's it'll be tough to. He's just in a position where it's hard to imagine there uh, there being any sort of contemporary view that no, the consensus is he's succeeding, or the consensus is that mm-hmm. he's failing. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Yeah, you're 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 seeing that narrative already be told by the mainstream media and then of course parroted uh they're locking on to democrats uh to kind of tell that story even in more depth i mean it's just to me it's telling chuck in the sense of the inauguration tomorrow is going to be covered by the mainstream media outlets more like a funeral rather than a party (laughs) i mean that's how they're already framing it um and you saw yesterday cnn and several other outlets release polls to show that to kind of put data behind their editorializing, right, that the country's uh, Donald Trump enters with such low approval ratings. seems like they're just setting up that storyline um, so that they can keep beating that drum. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, there's also the fact that, you know, this is the first time, certainly in my, I'm 44, whatever, like in my memory of, of elections, that there that a lot of the main kind of principal publications, the highest profile publications, we're, all, we're a little more open about the fact that they were sort of taking an adversarial relationship with this candidate. This was, you know, months before the election. Almost sort of not anticipating the possibility of how that would then impact coverage going forward if he were elected. I mean, it's it's sort of hard for them to sort of to change the, the position they've already taken or established over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they backed themselves into a corner in that sense. Um, what... Chuck, I want to talk about uh, your book. Um, okay. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Give us the the brief synopsis. Well, uh, the book is called "But What If We're Wrong," okay, and the, the subtitle is "Thinking About the Present as If It Were the Past." And 
what I was trying to do with this book is sort of think about the way we view history and distant history, the way we look at, you know, uh, the Reconstruction or the 1500s or, you know, uh, the Dark Ages or whatever. And I think of what criteria we use to kind of understand that period. And then I thought about the way we think about contemporary times when we use totally different reasons. Uh, what's important now and what's important in the past are, are not the same. So what I tried to do is sort of leap forward into you know, like the, the hypothetical brain of someone living 300 or 500 or 1,000 years in the future, looking back on this specific period of time through the lens of how a historian would look at the past. You know, I, I was trying to sort of work through the fact that the history of ideas is kind of the history of people being wrong that what people believe in any time period um, ends up being replaced and reinterpreted by people who come later. So what I'm basically trying to do is look at the contemporary culture as history. Hmm. And, uh, and what, what was your, I don't want to spoil, I guess I don't want to spoil the book, but I do. What was your end conclusion there? Well, it's not so much an end conclusion as is, you know, I wrote about, literature, I wrote about music, I wrote about sports, politics, science, these ideas kind of, and, and kind of worked from this, this premise that, you know, uh, over and over through the, you know, through every generation, there has been this idea that there's some obvious reality, and then that reality is shifted. So I tried to think, ask questions and said, well, what's the most obvious answer? And then assumed that must be wrong. Because in the past, what seemed obvious has always seemed to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So if the obvious conclusion is incorrect, what are some possible alternatives? So like I, I write about, you know, what writer from this period will be re remembered as sort of the defining individual, the defining literary person from this, this, uh, this period of time? Will it be someone who we currently perceive as being great? Will it be someone who is just very commercial and, but not taken seriously? Or will it be someone completely unknown? Um, I sort of think about the idea of how, over time, all music ends up being boiled down usually to one artist, like marching music is just John Philip Sousa. He's the only composer anyone knows. Mm -hmm. So that will happen with rock music at some point. What will be the artist that everyone will use as shorthand for the entire genre? Um, I talk about the idea in science of, are we sort of continually getting closer to these deep answers, or are we just sort of waiting for another complete shift in the way we think about science? Right. And, that, you know, um, and in politics, I sort of discussed the possibility that some of the things that we actually think are strengths, particularly to the United States, might be weaknesses over time. Like, can you give me an example of what, what would be a strength uh, that we're perceived to have a strength now but could be a weakness? Here's the obvious one, the Constitution. I think that, that almost everyone sort of reflexively looks at the Constitution as sort of almost the fabric of what the United States is, that, that if you run for office and you would be come out against the Constitution, you, know, you couldn't become city aldermen. All, we're, just, we're sort of you know, programmed to view this as an almost impeachable document. And yet, look at the. We think about if, if uh, you know, America no longer exists in a thousand years. You know, the way we look back at ancient civilizations, there might be a perception that America was too tied to this document that we made purposely difficult to change, and that we sort of decided that no matter how the country changed, how the population moved 
affect how how sort of the fabric of what America was altered, we would still sort of rely on this singular document. It's a strength that could become a weakness. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Mm-hmm. Hard. It's hard to think of the Constitution in that way. You know, but uh, if in some history book, if you were reading about a fallen society and it was described as being completely built around an unchangeable, not that long document, that would seem like a fatal flaw. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where time will tell, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, well, so, so that, far, you know, it looks so it was, to very, you know be a pretty good fix, but it's pretty easy to get people to talk for this book because people are very willing to be interviewed if the questions you're asking them won't be proven right or wrong for 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually a good one. Yeah. Ideas, yeah. Right. Uh, well, if you had to guess, who, who do you think would be uh, the politician that would define all politicians? Well, the thing that is most likely to happen, and here again, the fact that it's most likely might mean it's not going to occur, but let's just say what's this period going to be most likely remembered by for and by? It will probably be remembered for the period where uh, technology uh, suddenly became at least computer technology became ingrained with the lives of almost every person, not just a select industry, but you know, almost everyone has some relationship with it. It's just, this is kind of the Internet technology era. So the politician who will come to reflect that period will be the person who is most closely connected to these advents in technology. It's hard to say who that will be. But, I mean, when you mention Trump and, and his, his sort of desire and willingness to Twitter, that's the most engagement mm-hmm. any president has ever had with technology. So if you move uh, through time, regardless of what happens to the country in a kind of a political sense, and the thing that gets remembered is the importance of social media and technology on the world during this period, he may seem like sort of the obvious person to point to, regardless of how you feel about how he does it and why he does it. That's an interesting take. You know, I I was reflecting yesterday to think all of these tweets are going to be in the history books, like in the Library of Congress forever. <laughs> I mean, literally, is. he is making history with every stroke of a, of, a, of, a, of or every tweet. But 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 you know what? But there's a there's a another side to that. We have very limited resources about say things Lincoln wrote, and, and, you know, it's like the collection of Lincoln's letters, if they're out there, they're basically in the hands of a historian they have been studied. There's a real limited amount of material. There's going to be so much material from every person who lived through this period. Any individual tweet or whatever that will almost become even more meaningless than it seems uh, in the present, because it will just be this mass of information. It will be impossible for anyone, even though they'll have access to it and can find it if they want. Uh, it will almost be an insurmountable amount of media. I, I think Donald Trump, I think you're 100% right on that. And I also think Donald Trump recognizes that. That's why he uh, pushes out so much content uh, that he understands that it's the same thing with the news cycle, that the news cycle moves so fast that you can't keep up. That if he stepped in it yesterday, if he can move the story, the cycle is going to move beyond and we're going to forget what happened yesterday because there's already so much news and new information tomorrow. And so he actually, I think, has utilized that technique to make his entire political career. Well, I mean, what is Twitter beyond a way to answer questions that weren't actually asked? <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. You can go on 
Twitter and answer a question no one actually asked you about. It's the best kind of trouble. <laughs> right. Hey, Chuck, thanks so much for joining us. How, how can we find you on, on, on uh, Twitter or where can, and where can we get your book? Oh, well, my book can be pretty much anywhere. It's like, you know, obviously Amazon are the places that sells the most books. But I mean, if you put in my name or you put in, but what if we're wrong? And, it, and it's, up. and it's, uh, yeah, but if, what if I were, uh, what if we're wrong and your last name is it, uh, K-L-O-S-T-R-M-A-N. Is that correct? K-L-O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks Chuck for joining us. I appreciate your, your analysis and I don't think we'll be able to prove you wrong at least for a few hundred years. So you're safe, uh, yeah, well, from the Thomas guy. <laughs> well, thanks, Chuck. Uh, well, that was interesting. Um, that conversation is fascinating. Um, and while I, I actually, his theories give me pause in a sense of I feel like that approach gives somebody uh, a moral escape to making definitive judgment calls and right, on right and wrong, on what things that are black and things that are white. Uh, because they're saying, well, we won't know if I was right or if I was wrong for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I, I feel like while it's an interesting academic conversation to have in, in policymaking and in real-life decisions, you have to pick, you have to decide when things are moral or immoral, when things are right or they're wrong. Um, because otherwise, uh, you just, you have no moral code to live by, but, uh, what a thought provoking book. So I, I would highly recommend to check that out. Um, so next time we come on the air next Thursday at one, uh, Donald Trump will be the president of the United States. Barack Obama, um, will be in Palm Springs and I think he fancies himself as the de facto head of the Democratic Party for now. Um, and so he's not going anywhere. But in terms of power, uh, he will be powerless uh, from our government standpoint. Whether you like Donald Trump or you hate him, um, whether you're afraid of him or you're welcoming his policy changes, I encourage you to watch the ceremonies as much as you can tomorrow with an open lens. Not so much about Donald Trump the man, but about our government, about our constitution that Chuck spoke about, um, about our process, our peaceful transfer of power. Watching that is so powerful. Um, I just, and paying attention to the day is what you can do, I think, in a small way to pay respect to everyone who sacrificed so much for so many hundreds of years uh, to allow us to live in this great country. So on that note, thank you so much for watching this episode of The Thomas Guide. Be sure to catch us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Thomas Guide uh, and catch us next week at Thursday when we'll review the first week as Donald Trump was president of the United States of America. Thanks. This has been The Thomas Guide with John Thomas. We hope you've enjoyed the ride. Join us Thursdays at 1 on Facebook Live. Tweet John at The Thomas Guide. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. Or you can go to KFI. Keyword.